And we can turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12 is where we will be here this morning. That's on page number 922 in the Red Pew Bible. I do invite you to turn, turn follow along with us this morning and uh, see how the Scriptures move and teach us and where I have derived these points from. And hopefully what you hear from the pulpit is matching with what you see in the Scriptures. And in uh, that way, perhaps uh, you will be with the Holy Spirit instructed this morning. Uh, during heavy persecution, the church used a symbol of the fish to kind of be like a passcode to help them identify who they might be talking to, whether or not they were Christian or not. Um, and uh, the sign of the fish perhaps uh, might have been drawn in the sand, uh, perhaps like uh, a, a shape might have been started. You start the swish. Not, it wasn't going to be the Nike symbol. But you do a little swish, and perhaps if the stranger you were encountering in the market was a Christian, they would know, oh, I can just complete this and make the sign of the fish, and we don't have, we can let each other know that this is a safe conversation. Uh, during heavy persecution, the first couple centuries of the church, uh, this is a way to help identify. And uh, if the potential person in front of you was kind of potentially an informant, they look at that little swish, and they're like, they don't respond, then, well, it doesn't really mean anything. You just made a mark in the sand. And so, maybe you've seen the sign of the fish before, and you've never really understood where it came from or what it meant, uh, but the word fish, as I said, is an early symbol of Christianity, which in itself became a creedal acrostic. Uh, perhaps uh, you heard, you know what a creed is. It's a statement that says, I believe in, uh, I believe in. And uh, the word fish in the original language is like an acrostic. Each letter of the Greek word uh, refers to a very important point of doctrine in Christianity. Uh, ichthus is the word. You can see the Greek letters there. I'm going to break it down for you. Uh, each letter symbolizing ichthus, Christos, Jesus Christ, huios, Deus, Son of God, Soter, Savior. And so each of those letters correspond to the, the letters that make up the word fish. And taken together is like a brief, a brief statement of faith. And for my purpose this morning, this acrostic actually provides me with a segue to be able to give us a little bit of a review in chapter 11 of some of the portraits that we saw about Jesus. In chapter 11, we saw, first of all, that Jesus was the promised Messiah, or the Christ. John the Baptist was confused. He didn't know what was going on. He was in prison, and he sent messengers asking if Jesus was the coming Messiah or the Christ, or were they going to look for someone else? And Jesus goes into explanation and then turns to denounce cities that, that had, had his ministry in them and yet could not see him to be the Son of God who is coming as a coming judge to judge the world. And then we move to a third portrait of Jesus in which Jesus communicated to all who would hear him, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is a compassionate Savior. And you see those words in there, 
Christ, Son of God, Savior. I'm just using that. I don't think the first church saw these connections. I'm just borrowing it this morning to kind of get us back into the flow of Matthew and the six portraits of Jesus that, that Matthew wants us to see. And so if you uh, are in your scriptures, you'll see uh, chapter 12, we're coming upon a fourth portrait. So let's take time to read this text. It's uh, through verse 21 this morning. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to, to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not had condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered into their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. And Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, a long text, but in this text, we can see several colors that Matthew is trying to highlight in this portrait of Jesus. He is highlighting primarily, like a primary color in this painting, there is the authority that Jesus has to, and he lays claim over a primary commandment in the Ten Commandments, and he shocks his listeners, and he shocks the establishment, and rattles them, and authority is a dominant color that's in this portrait. There's another color, a secondary color, which is more applicational for us, and that is the significant degree of wisdom that Jesus displays, it's highlighted intensely. Jesus knows the scriptures and he applies the scriptures in a way that is not 
legalistic. And I would say that if we had even a thimbleful of Jesus' wisdom, how much more joy, how much more peace, how much more contentment we would all have in life. And it takes a great degree of wisdom to know how to follow Jesus well. Yeah, we've got the Bible. We've got the Bible, but how do we apply it? How do we know how to handle it in such a way that we don't bludgeon one another with it? Try to force people into places that they weren't intended to go. And I see here a beautiful connection between the previous portrait of Jesus as being a compassionate Savior. I see uh, him inviting his listeners to take upon him his yoke and verify, find within a relationship with him, peace and rest. And Jesus said, and if you can look back at verse uh, 29 and 30 of the previous chapter, he said, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is where real wisdom is found. In our own wisdom, we hurt ourselves and we hurt one another. James, James said this, that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, you see all of those qualities in Jesus. He was the perfect God-man. He was filled He was endued with the divine nature. And we have to ask ourselves, is there any hope for us that we would be able to follow in his footsteps? Well, actually, there is hope. Because after the resurrection, Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his followers to assist them to live wisely and to apply the scriptures in such a way that we don't hurt one another, that we are loving one another as we ought to love one another. And if any of us lacks wisdom, we are told to do what? We're told to ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. That is a promise. And so I'm going to be focusing on the secondary color hue in this text this morning Yes, you'll see the authority very clearly throughout, but that's, in, that's like on the surface. I'm, I'm going a little bit deeper here to show you the wisdom that is on display in Jesus' communication. And he shows us that wisdom that is from above leads to true Sabbath rest. Now, our soul will want to fight against the rest that Jesus would offer us in following him. And there are three ways that our souls fight the rest that Jesus offers us. And I want us to look at these in the three sections. There were three, two incidents, and then there was a a post-commentary on the scriptures. And in all three of these sections, I believe you can see our tendency to fight, but also Jesus' call and invitation to put his yoke upon us. 
So first, I want us to see that we all have a tendency to value our own sacrifices over God's mercy. Uh, verses 1 through 8, we see Jesus in the, corn, or in the, in the wheat fields with his disciples. Or they're passing through and they're, they're in harvest. And the incident is really a prelude to what Jesus says in verse 8. In verse 8, he says... Uh, the Son of Man is Lord. He, he has control over the Sabbath. So let's think about the setting of this controversy for a moment. The setting, and you see that the word Sabbath is used frequently. If you're not familiar with what the word Sabbath means, it's okay. But it refers to the sixth day of the Jewish week, or what we would call Saturday. In their calendar system, the, the last day of the week was the day in which the whole community rested from any activity, any work, and it was a mandatory rest day. No work was to be done on that day under the pains of being stoned. Now, doesn't that sound lovely? And the severity of the law was actually intended for the good of God's people. I don't know how you are, but have you ever noticed how easy it is to get on the, the, the hamster wheel and just kind of keep going and 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 it just doesn't seem to want to stop? Well, to be honest, I think it's, it's helpful for us to be able to place some guards, and I think God in his wisdom knew that we needed those things. But the Jews themselves had taken what God intended as a gift and used it as a way to control. And they had made every attempt to analyze every aspect of life and quantify it in terms of how much work was being done in that moment. Uh, I don't think you could imagine an even more taxing way of living. Um, they, they were trying to create less work for people, but they made even more work for people. For example, here they have the disciples are just, they're picking, they're picking grain in the field, and they would say, well, that's actually harvesting. And they would rub those those grains in their fingers and say, that's threshing. And you can't do any of those work-related activities on the Sabbath. They had made Sabbath-keeping itself work. It was so exhausting to keep up with all of the regulations. I don't know, have you ever, have you ever done a diet where in the end you become so obsessed with everything that you're eating that it becomes exhausting to even maintain and keep up. It, what, it, what first started out was a great idea becomes like a burden on your back. And uh, to be honest, this, this is kind of the, the how things were going. This is how it started, but this is how things were going for Israel. What God intended as to be a good thing became so corrupted and so, so heavy. Now, the law at its most basic level was designed to, to encourage people, to re, 
recalibrate their hearts and say, okay, pause, take a break, and look to your God who gave you everything. That at its basic level was its intention. But the law can become a means by which we virtue signal, in which we show other people that we are, we're doing it. We're earning a place before God, and I'm my own savior. I don't need God. I can actually do his law in such a way that I'm better than others around me. And this is what the Jews had done. They had an establishment that, that created all these rules for the, for the plebes, and they were the ones who were doing what the law required. Now, Jesus here, he makes an argument for mercy. I want you to see verse 3 through 6 and follow his argument for mercy. He says in verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, for those who were with him, but only for priests. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are yet guiltless? And I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, Jesus parries back very skillfully. He, he's, he's, a, he's an approved workman that needeth not to be ashamed. He rightly divides the word of truth. I don't think Jesus necessarily quoted a verse he learned in Awana, but what he did was he, he knew the Bible stories, and he knew how to, to interpret them well. And he remembers the story about David on the run from Saul, and he took refuge in the temple or the tabernacle as it was in those days. He was hungry. He didn't have time to, he was running for his life. And so there in the tabernacle, the priests allow him to eat that which was supposed to be only eaten by the priests. And it made it permissible. Now, what made it permissible for David to do this and not be subject to the consequences of the law and judgment. Well, I believe that what Jesus saw in this, that there are times when there's God-pleasing trespasses of the commandment. In other words, it was a life and death situation. And for David, yes, it was a life, life and death situation, but what about the disciples? They're just kind of like just sweeping their hand through the grains and whatever kind of comes up with the fingers, they're kind of Pairing it open and they're eating it. Well, Jesus looked at that situation in which the David, uh, there was an emergency, and now he, he kind of puts them off balance, and then he takes another step and he says, look, in the temple itself, there are activities, there's work that's going on in such a way through the day, but yet the priests are blameless because they're carrying out something positive, something that God delights in. And so he, he recognizes, Jesus recognizes, there are things that God may want us to do on a Sabbath that he takes great pleasure in. And then Jesus goes a step further and says, okay, you think the Sabbath is holy? Well, the 
temple bread is holy, but the temple itself, that's like the, the summit of holiness, right? But what if there is someone in your midst who is greater than the temple itself? And if I say that it's okay, then isn't it okay? And there are basic points along the way, and Jesus is absolutely correct. God values mercy over sacrifice. And there are points along the way that if Jesus is the true and greater temple, he's going to take away all, all the sins, and he is the one who is going to provide mercy in the greatest expression. So why can't you, on your low level, do acts of mercy too? Since all sacrifices are going to be carried out in him. It's amazing how easily we can twist the scriptures to justify and, and allow us to do whatever we would want to do. Now in verse 7, Jesus examines the motive here. And he quotes an Old Testament text that condemns them for not having a merciful spirit. Now, verse, uh, let's read verse 7 together. It says, Now, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, this is actually, in Matthew's presentation, the second time Jesus has quoted this scripture to these Pharisees. Back in chapter 8, they had turned up their noses to Jesus mingling with Matthew. Jesus even went into the house of a tax collector. He was a corrupt IRS worker. Why, why would you even go into his house? He's the enemy. And Jesus said, look, I want you to go, and I want you to learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes the same text. And apparently they had not learned what this meant because they are failing to apply mercy here. And they had not learned, not because they couldn't learn. They were intelligent people but because they didn't want to learn. They were proud, and they wouldn't let the Word of God affect their hearts. You know, and I think we ought to take great consideration from what Jesus is instructing these and see if not we at times will apply and do the same things. And all who take the Bible seriously, we ought to be warned by this Sabbath controversy because there are multiple times in this text where we hear, it is written, it is written, it is written. And we can have at times, paradoxically, a, a false zeal for the Bible. And that's the heart of this controversy. We, of all people, religious Bible people, can have such a high view of Scripture that if we're not careful, we become false zealous for the Scriptures. And we fail to apply mercy to those who need it. And so Jesus really hits hard here, and he's, he's telling them, look, you know, you've got this potential 
tendency to value, you know, you keep the law, and you're going to make everyone keep the law, and you can value your own sacrifice above God's mercy. But it all hinges upon this, this problematic tendency of, of, of highlighting one's own interpretation over God's grace. And so in verses 9 and following, you see, I believe, Jesus pointing out, look, this is, this is really problematic. And we ought to be paying attention, too, as if we love the Scriptures, we also need to love mercy as well. Verse 9 through 10, we see a setting of a trap that takes place. Verse 9 says, He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. So Jesus sees this man with a withered hand, and I don't know what happened that caused this withering to take place. I have met folks who have had strokes whose arms become withered and turned in. And it can take a lot of time to, to kind of go through therapy and try to even get them out to half use. We don't know. Maybe it was a birth defect. I'm not positive. But they used this man in such a corrupt and gross way to try to trap Jesus. And they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They knew his heart's intention to do good. And it's a trap. Now, how could Jesus have gotten himself out of this trap? Well, if he was a lot like us, we might say, you know, we might get all political and we might go something along these lines. You know, I believe it's biblical to treat emergency cases on the Sabbath. But I believe that other cases, out of reverence for God's word and the Sabbath, can wait a few more hours. Just a few more hours. When sundown hits, come by my house, I'll take care of you. Now, why doesn't Jesus give that kind of answer? Because Jesus sees not doing good when it's in your power to do good to be actively doing evil. When you've got the power and it lies by you to do good and you choose not to do it, it's an evil heart that's doing it. Now Jesus uses this trap and turns it back on his listeners and there's an argument that he makes for grace. Verse 11 and 12 Jesus responds before he actively heals, and he says in verse 11, Now which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is, not, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus sees misplaced values here. If you've got more compassion for your animals, and no one would think twice of helping an animal, but how many of us have said in our hearts, you know, they got themselves into that mess, then maybe they ought to get themselves out of it. I mean, we put more value on an animal who's not thinking 
And we don't have compassion for people who are thinking but are confused maybe by the sin nature that they've inherited from Adam? Why do we not have more compassion? And I'm preaching to myself here. I have myself to deal with. I have these attitudes that come up periodically. Sometimes interpretations of Scripture are not always equal. In fact, sometimes they become blinders which prevent us from doing good for other people. I, I know that within most churches, it's been historically considered bad taste at times to, at least in our church circles, to, to do fundraisers. And I remember when we first moved here to Honesdale, I asked to use the church for a yard sale to raise money for our adoption. And back then, we were a different church. Thank God, we're not that kind of church anymore. But back in those days, I heard it whispered back to me that you should have gone and rented a hall somewhere. Because it might look like a church-sponsored fundraiser event. And I got to say, I just bit my tongue. I pushed forward. But that's an example of potentially letting your interpretation of Scripture put blinders on. Now, there are times gone by when lots of churches would even refuse to remarry a couple no matter what the cause was prior to a divorce. There might be a just reason not to do so. I understand that. But their policy would say, in effect, we can't marry you, but if you go down the street, there's a pastor, there's a justice of the peace, and they'll do it for you, and you can come back. And we'll welcome you in. Do you hear how unmerciful that sounds? And if we're not careful, a non gracious and false biblicism can be at play. And I must confess that I have at times been guilty of this myself. I can't just stand up here and say, it's all you all or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. It's all of us can have this tendency. I have unnecessarily put burdens on other people that I was not willing to carry myself. I want to step back for a moment into the 16th and 17th centuries for a moment, and I want us to consider just how the tendency to legalize Sundays became a Protestant effect. In the 16th and 17th centuries, there was a radical break with Roman Catholicism, and it caused a lot of these new Protestants to question everything, because they had been jarred by some false doctrine, yes, lots of false doctrine, yes, but they, they, they re-examined everything, and some rightly jettisoned some of the traditions that were not derived from Scripture, but during this period, there began a debate over what would be the proper way to interpret the Scripture. How do we apply it in such a way that we know, you know, what's the better of interpretation? There, are two, there were two principles that developed during this time period. One called the regulative 
principle. And I believe it still haunts us today. And the regulative principle advises the readers of Scripture not to do anything unless it is explicitly stated in Scripture. Now, there's an appearance of wisdom in that approach. However, it can also become a detriment to grace. And so in corporate worship in the 16th and 17th centuries, a lot of nonconformist churches only sang from the Psalter. They would only sing because there was great dispute over what was a what was a hymn and what was a song, and can we take the scripture and kind of set it to a tune and kind of rework the words so it rhymes at the end? And there were great battles over that type of stuff. And it was brought out because, yes, there was a faith, a desire to be faithful to scripture. That's commendable. But the regulative tendency became etched into the thinking of people's hearts and minds. In fact, it even entered into the Westminster Confession of Faith and affected a lot of people. John Bunyan was one of those who had severe emotional ups and downs because he was told by the church that he couldn't do any recreational activity on a Sunday. As a young man, he was an athletic guy. He loved lawn bowling. And he would go lawn bowling in the afternoon, and then he would break down in tears later, realize, oh, I had broken God's word. His conscience was bound by an interpretation of Scripture that I don't believe was grace-filled. Now, there's another type of principle which is called the normative principle, in which the readers of Scripture are believed to have freedom to do what is not specifically prohibited in the Scriptures. And you can hear the good dose of freedom that's in that. You know, if the Scriptures don't necessarily give us direction, then we can use wisdom in application. We can make decisions to see whether or not it would be good or not. And so, in other words, the church has not always interpreted Scripture well. And we ought to be careful that we're not like the Pharisees. We want to be careful that we do not burden others and that we seek and strive for the unity and well-being of the church. And if that means putting our private interpretations to the side, we must do so. We also need to have an attitude of grace. Be ready to help. And we might need to put our own private interpretations aside so that in our corporate worship service we're able to encourage others around us. When the young and the faith come to church and they need help and they don't know the first thing about what, we might need to put some of our interpretations aside and be gracious to those who are weak among us. And the question that Jesus answers so boldly is uh, he, he asks, is it, is it lawful? to do good on the Sabbath? And Jesus would say, yes. It is lawful to do good for those around us. And wisdom that is from above leads us towards true Sabbath rest. Now, we need to examine the motive again. I, I spent a, a, a lengthier time on that point, but 
In verse 13 to 14, you can kind of see some of the similar conclusions and, 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 and examination as we saw in the previous incident. Verse 13 to 14, we read, And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Can you imagine? Jesus commanded the man to stretch forth his... Like, he's, he's, he's weak. He can't... It could take two or three years of therapy just to get half, half your use back. And he just goes, whoop. How can you look at that? And then walk away and say, nope, we need to destroy this guy. It's because they love their interpretation more than they love grace. And grace is found in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. In all of this, there is a tendency to value our own wisdom over God's Spirit. Verse 15 to 21. Verse 15 to 21. Jesus was aware that they were going to try to destroy him, and, and it wasn't his hour, it wasn't his time. And so he withdrew from there, and he, he and his followers did miracles continuously, but tried to caution people not to make a big deal out of it, to draw more attention to him. In verse 17, Matthew says, hey, this was to fulfill what was written back when Isaiah wrote about the Messiah when he would come. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope." There is an attempt to be quiet, but also I want us to note that in these 10 lines quoted from Isaiah, there's like, we're almost halfway through Matthew, and there's almost like a reflective look back on what Jesus has, has done to this point, even in this. I mean, in the first line of Isaiah, we're, we're, her, we're kind of reminded of the baptism of Jesus when he went down into the waters and he came up again, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved and you almost want to say, son, with whom I am well pleased. It's intentional to remind us that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit to carry out a ministry of relief to the, the weak and the sick. But he was also endued with great wisdom because it says in verse, at the end of that verse, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, the word justice there is a beautiful expression of, of knowing how to live well with other people, proclaiming justice. Like, how do I live well with other people? And Jesus did that. He taught the Sermon on the Mount. The wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount was so great, but it would follow, it would move a person to a place of blessedness, to a place of 
emotional and spiritual healing, it will actually take you a place of rest, rest within your soul. Now, at the moment, this message was hidden from the Jews and it was going to come to the Gentiles, yes. But Christ's pattern is described in this in which he doesn't quarrel, he doesn't cry out in the streets, he's, he's not a revolutionary. You know, the world likes revolutionaries. Well, some of the world does. Some people like a bull in a china shop. But most revolutionaries have little patience for the weak. Jesus is for the weak. And that's not the wisdom of the world. But that's the way of the Spirit. Jesus is gentle with bruised reeds. Smoldering wicks that are just barely there. He doesn't just squish them out. Hanging on by an ember. I've got to be honest. Just when I think I'm being gentle, I know I'm not being gentle enough. I know that my own heart, I also struggle with these tendencies. It's the outcasts that come to Jesus. They were the ones who got his special attention. It's a place of self-denial. And the cross leads us to find him who our souls desperately need. He's our true Sabbath rest. In our weakness, we long for a, a, just a day. Can I just have a break? Can I just have one day? Jesus offers eternity, eternal rest, because he's Lord of the Sabbath. And the resurrection shows us that he has gone to prepare a place for us, and he's going to come again, and he's going to receive us unto himself so that where he is, we may be with him forever. And real wisdom comes from above. It doesn't come from this, this earth. We may think that we've got, like, the best way, and we've got the knowledge, and we've got the skills, and... No. Wisdom that is from above leads to true Sabbath rest. And our souls fight because we want the glory. We fight that rest. We want to value, you know, my sacrifice, I can do this. I like my interpretation better than your interpretation. We value our own wisdom over the Spirit. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom that which is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son. He is who we need to follow. We need to put ourselves into him. Lord, where we don't follow well, Lord, help us to be humble, to admit so, and to take the steps that we need to to change and make things as they ought to be. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would cause us to, to love well, to love your word, but also love one another. And so, Father, I pray that you would lead us with wisdom that which comes from above. And may you receive all glory uh, through your church. In your name we pray. Amen.